Our scripture this morning is Romans 8, verses 1 through 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh des desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Okay, I'll take care of it. Would you please pray with me? Again, God, we come to you and uh, recognize our need for your, uh, your help as we look at this passage and the complexity and beauty uh, and just wonder of what it is that Paul is writing to the church in Rome and what it is that he's writing to us thousands of years later about your spirit and what your spirit does in our lives. So we, we need your help. Would you please help us to, uh, to not just hear, but help us, Lord, to understand uh, and be moved uh, by what we consider this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
Well, let me invite you, if you have a Bible, uh, whether it's an app or a physical book, uh, to open it because it will help you as we move along. We started two weeks ago in this little sub-series, mini-series that uh, is talking about the person of Holy Spirit. Uh, and I mentioned this, I think, two weeks ago. This has been, you know, uh, for those of us that, that have grown up in, in the, the Reformed tradition, uh, Holy Spirit tends to not get a whole lot of attention, sadly. Uh, and so what I realized is that, you know, I'm, I'm Puerto Rican and in the in Latino culture, uh, the, the role of Holy Spirit is very significant. So what I realized is that this is something that I needed to go and learn on my own. Uh, and I know that for some of you, uh, especially if you've been in, um, in different church traditions, uh, the role of Holy Spirit is, is fairly important. Uh, so I've spent a lot of time over the years reading, trying to understand who Holy Spirit is and what the significant, uh, significance of his ministry is in our lives. Because I, I think it's easy for us to have a knowledge of Holy Spirit that is, you know, like biography-ish, uh, right? You know things about him uh, and what he does, and yet not really know him as a person. Not know him as in the kind of things that he, the way that he works in our lives. And that's, that's what we're striving for. That's what we want to do. So Romans 8 is this amazing passage that Paul writes to the church in Rome, where he's, he's like unpacking for you, like these are the things that Holy Spirit does. And there's, there's, a lot that we've, uh, that there's a lot that we've seen, but there's a lot more that we could see that we're not going to have a chance to do uh, between two Sundays ago and this Sunday. So let me recap, because this is a part two. Uh, so let me recap part one, especially because part one was two weeks ago. Uh, so there are four things that we see happening in this passage. First of all, we said that the Holy Spirit provides uh, release. Uh, and there we talked about the idea of there being no condemnation, that part of what the Spirit does in our lives is that anything that is, any kind of grief or shame or anything like that that might come because of our own actions, because other people might heap on us, any way that anyone might say to you, God won't love you, you can't be forgiven, uh, all of that is wiped away, right? There's no condemnation. The Spirit will convict of sin, right? If we are not living the way that we're supposed to live, the Spirit does convict, but the Spirit does not condemn because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The second thing that we saw two weeks ago was that the Holy Spirit has the power of renewal. We talked about the distinction between uh, having our minds set on the things of the flesh versus having our minds set on the things of the spirit. So flesh and spirit was the distinction that Paul makes in verses five to eight. Uh, and so that the mind that is set on the flesh is ultimately in hostility towards God, but the mind that is set on the spirit will ultimately, as we're gonna see in a second, uh, be experience adoption as sons, uh, and we're going to, again, we're going to look at that in a minute. So already we see that there's this kind of this twofold part. There's this change that spirit brings about outside of us. There's this declaration. There's this statement that said, hey, you're not condemned. Uh, but there's something that changes inside of us as well. And that is that our mindset, like Paul actually says, your minds are set on the spirit. It's, it's a done thing. But we know, right? If you follow Jesus, you know, like that's, 
my mind is not set on the spirit, right? You know that that's true. Uh, and so that tension is this tension of that, that the, um, what we call the already and the not yet. There's this tension of that there are things that scripture says that are true already, and yet they're not yet ready in the fullness of what they will be when Jesus returns. Uh, so that's the review. Now, let's jump into point number three. Uh, which is that the Holy Spirit's promise of resurrection. So the four points are, let me recap them real quick. Uh, Holy Spirit's provision of release. Holy Spirit's power of renewal. Those are two weeks ago. Uh, Holy Spirit's promise of resurrection. That's next. And then Holy Spirit's proof of relationship. That's the last point today. All right. So the contrast that Paul is making for us in verses 9 to 13 is a contrast between uh, death and life. All right, so uh, if you are, if you're, if you're not in Christ, uh, if your mind is set on the things of the flesh, then the ultimate end of that, the, word that, the, 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 the place that that's going to take you to is death. Physical death, that's for all of us, right? But then spiritual death on the other side of physical death. But if you have uh, accepted Christ, if you follow Jesus and his spirit has been given to you, then your mind is set on the things of the spirit. And the end of that pathway is life. Uh, physical death, but spiritual life, eternal life. Uh, and the term that Paul wants you to have when you think about that, right? Think of this as it's, it, is a, it is a life after death kind of power. What do we call life after death? We call it resurrection, Right? So the life that you have, the life that Holy Spirit brings to you is resurrection life. Okay? Uh, and this is what Paul says in verse 11. The, the, the Spirit is the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. And what all the commentators will say is like, hey, what, seem, what Paul seems to be saying here isn't just that it's identifying Holy Spirit as the Father's Spirit. But it's actually saying that Holy Spirit and the Father work together to bring about the resurrection. So it's a, it's a resurrecting, it's the Spirit is the Spirit of resurrection. Uh, so it says in verse 11, And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, parenthetically, he, he's saying that, that that's true. It's not like if, it's he's saying because it's true, then he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, because of the spirit who lives in you. You will die, but you will live, right? Paul says that this is so certain that in Colossians 3, this is one of those other moments where you've got this like, Paul will say something is true, and you're like, wait a minute, that's not true, but it is true, right? There's this already and not yet. So in Colossians 3, listen to how Paul says, he says, since then, since you have been raised with Christ, Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You see, like, you hear, like you hear that? It's already happened. You've already been raised with Christ. You believe that? If you, if you have accepted Christ, if you follow Jesus, your resurrection is so certain that Paul can say it's completed action in the past. Why? Because Jesus has already been raised. Right? Because Jesus' resurrection is completed action in the past, your resurrection is also completed action in the past because your resurrection is connected to Jesus' 
resurrection. And Holy Spirit is the seal that says this is true of you. Now, so what? Like, what's the big deal? Like, that's an interesting idea. Maybe it's like, oh, that's intellectually stimulating. Uh, what do you actually do with that? Like, what's the, what's the, why does that even matter? Paul gives us the answer to that in verses 12 to 13. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. That's a strong word, right? Like, if you feel obliged to something, there's like, there's a level of commitment there an expectation. We have an obligation, he says, but it is not to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But here's the obligation. The obligation is that if you, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Now, listen to the logic of this, right? You have experienced, in Jesus, you have experienced life over death power. So why would you go back to a death over life power? Why would you live a life that is marked by death when what you have been given is the spirit who brings life, right? Why would you act this way when this other thing is true of you? Uh, and so what this, is, um, what this is, what Paul's like talking about here is that the reality is like a following Jesus is not just a say a prayer, and then go about your merry way, right? But that following Jesus means that the whole shape of your life changes. Uh, and, and here, what he talks about is the reality of what we call a big, big theological word, but it's an important word. It's not used very often anymore. Mortification, right? This idea that you are actively working against the sinful impulses of your life. And that is both something that Holy Spirit does for you and with you. Get that? Right? Holy Spirit is doing that in you. He's infusing that resurrection power in you. But then we are called to actively put to death these impulses as well. And this is that spirit-filled living of how it is that we work out this resurrection life. Isn't that amazing? All right. I don't don't know that you believe that, but after this next point, I think you will. All right, so here we go. So I was reading a book. This is the second point, by the way. We're we're making our way here. Uh, Holy Spirit's Proof of Relationship. Uh, So I read, I'm reading this book called On the Road with St. Augustine. It's a really good book uh, by an author named James uh, Smith. And he, in one of these chapters, he gives this illustration of a a research project that was done about the importance of relationships. Uh, So the study was done where a group of people were all brought together and they were going to play a game of catch. Uh, So, you know, imagine, you know, we get all of us here, we're playing a game of catch. And so the point was, don't let the ball fall to the ground, just keep tossing the ball around each other and make sure, you know, that everybody gets a chance at the ball. However, the, the, uh, the, the project was, or the experiment was that one person was intentionally ostracized from the, the game. She was never going to have the ball given to her, but she doesn't know that, right? Uh, and so what ends up happening is that the, the way that the, the, the thing was explained is, like, you know, at first, the, the participants, uh, as they're describing it after the fact, at first they're like, well, okay, you know, eventually it'll come to me, you know? And then after it's like, man, this is odd. It's not coming to me. And so then afterwards you're like, doggone, like this is, this is, oh, I don't want to play this stupid game anyway. And they walk off, 
right? And what they, and what they reported in debriefing afterwards across the board was that the person who felt ostracized reported feelings of helplessness and meaninglessness as a result of not being included in that relationship of the game. And the, and the bottom line of the experiment was underlining this idea that we are built for relationships, right? You're, I'm seeing lots of heads nodding, right? Okay, yeah, we all know that this is true, right? We just like, in our gut, we know being alone stinks. I could use stronger language, but we have kids in the room, right? It stinks. Pentecost is God's way of telling you you're not alone, right? Pentecost is God's way of saying, I am going to be with, Jesus said, I will be with you Till the end of the age. But he can't be with us till the end of the age. He's in heaven on a throne. So how is Jesus able to keep that promise, I will be with you until the end of the age? Holy Spirit. All right? So now let me read these verses again. I, um, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to read verses 14 to 17, but I'm going to read them from the ESV as opposed to the NIV. Uh, and the reason I'm reading in front of the ESV is because the ESV does a better job of maintaining an important distinction in the, in the translation. So I'm, I'm going to read from the ESV. Uh, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. All right, so listen to the logic of this. The logic of this is that if you have Holy Spirit, you are adopted as a son. If you are adopted as a son, you have the Holy Spirit. Got that? It's a, it's a two-way street. If one is true, the other is true. Now, um, in translating the New Testament, right, so you all know that the Bible was not written in English. You all know this, right? The Bible was written in Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and in Aramaic. Uh, and so uh, when you go to seminary and study theological, you know, theological education, uh, you are required, one of the classes that you're required to take is you're required to take biblical languages. So when I was in seminary, when Kate was in seminary, we took, we studied how to do this work of translating from the original languages. Um, and so part of the reality is like there are judgment calls that you have to make on how to translate certain words. Some versions of the Bible will take the word sons and will uh, have made a distinction and say, hey, you know what? When the word sons is used, oftentimes the meaning of it is not just men, but it's everybody. And so uh, what they'll do is they'll use what's known as gender-inclusive translation. And so they'll take the word son, for example, and translate it as sons and daughters because they want to emphasize that, hey, what's being talked about here is not just for men, but it's for all of God's people. Uh, and so, honestly, one of the main reasons that I use the NIV is because the NIV, that's a, that's a translation priority for the NIV. So sometimes, make, sometimes when something is translated that way, it makes it clearer what the intention of the original author was. However, there are times 
where uh, we have to stick to the word because if we don't stick to the word, the original meaning gets muddier. Uh, Romans 8 is one of those examples, right? So in Romans 8, Paul uses the word son, and we really can't give up the word son in this particular set of verses because Paul is drawing from Roman adoption practices, right? So he's writing to the church in Rome, and uh, he is taking something that they would culturally understand, and he's giving it theological application for them to be able to go, oh my goodness, that's what's going on? So if you were in Rome and you adopted somebody, so first of all, let's just kind of, right, this only happened with men, okay? Uh, So that's part of the reason why it's son language. Uh, So if you were a man and you adopted a son, that son that you adopted would have all of his debts removed. Any future debts that the son incurred would also be dealt with by the father. An adopted son would have, uh, in some instances, I've never read any of these myself, but in in the research I've done, there, there are even instances where an adopted son was given higher status than a natural born son. And if you were an adopted son, you could not be disinherited. A natural born son can be disinherited. An adopted son in Roman adoption customs could not be disinherited, right? So once you're adopted, you're done. Now imagine that. No debt, new status, can't be disinherited. That's pretty powerful, right? And so what Paul is saying to both men and women is that you have been adopted and the adoption that God has given to you, the adoption that he has given to you is like the adoption that the Romans did. Your debts are gone, you have a new status, you can't be disinherited. Amen? Right? So that's what he's saying. And so this is the gospel, right? We, we talk about how the gospel is like this multifaceted thing. One of the realities of the gospel is that the gospel says you are brought into the family of God. You are made a child, and as a child, you are given the status of a son. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Now, beyond that, and this is, and this is um, uh, Tim Keller and something that he wrote on this, said, noted how subversive this would have been for the Roman world. Because a, an institution that was only for men was now being turned on its head, and now the empowerment through adoption was being equally given to women and men because of what Christ has done. Now, there are a bunch of, like, if you, like, dive deeper into this section of Romans 8, there are, like, six or seven different things that you can tease out. I want to focus on just one. Uh, What does it mean that you're adopted? It means that you now have intimacy, you have relationship, you have belonging with God. Have you ever stopped to think why it is that the primary way that we refer to God is Father? Newsflash, God is not male, okay? God is not male. God is a spirit. He has no gender. Jesus has gender. Jesus is male, right? He took on human flesh. Jesus will eternally be male, but the Father is spirit. 
So then why is it that Father is the primary way that we refer to him? Why is it that the, we, um, and, blah, 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 hold. why is Father the primary way that we refer to the first person of the Trinity? Any guesses? Because Jesus calls him Father. Go read the gospel accounts. And if you read the gospel accounts, what you find is that Jesus is the only one in the gospel accounts who refers to the first person of the Godhead, the first person of the Trinity, as Father. Right? In, in uh, Mark 14, right, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is the first person who says, Abba, Father. And it only appears two other places in the Bible, here in Romans 8 and then in Galatians 4, where Paul's making the exact same point. In less than a generation, a group of people who never would have dreamed of referring to the God of heaven and earth in such a relationally intimate way are being told by one of the primary teachers of that faith, this is the appropriate way for you to refer to your Lord, to, your, uh, to, your, to, to the first person of the Godhead. It is appropriate for you to call him Father. And not just Father in a, in a uh, kind of formal sense, right? But Abba, right? That's an intimate word. That's, that's more akin to like dad, daddy, right? There's an intimacy there that is brought in because of what Jesus has done. That's why, I mean, think about it. Like, how does the Lord's Prayer begin? Our Father, right? Jesus, when he was teaching the disciples to pray, was instilling in them this language of adoption, this language of intimacy. This is what he wants. And so what does it look like then for us to pursue that relationship? God gives you his spirit in order to help you pursue the relationship. For some of us pursuing the relationship, for some of us pursuing, that means that we need to make the transition from unbelief to belief, right? For some of us, this journey is the journey of first coming to believe in Jesus, first coming to accept what he has done for us on the cross, and recognizing that, that we can be brought into the family of God. And it's at that point, it's at that point, that we can call God Father. You, you can't call God Father if you've not been adopted into the family. And you're not adopted into the family unless the Spirit's been given to you. And you don't get the Spirit until you believe in Jesus. But when those things happen, he becomes your Father. And then for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, the life of pursuing Abba Father is the life of discipleship. Right? It's the life of continuing to grow and, and, and to uh, follow Jesus, follow the teaching of Jesus, join Jesus in his mission. That is the life of discipleship. Uh, and that is what Holy Spirit does, right? You can't do that on your own. I can't do that on my own. And the Father knows that, right? And so in the same way that, that if you are a parent, uh, that you know your kids have certain needs and you're going to provide for your children, imperfectly at times, sure, but you're going you're gonna to seek to provide for your children. If you, well, all of us have parents, right? Um, if, if you have had parents who have sought to provide for you and care for you, that's just a small image of what the Father, Abba Father does, and that's what he does through his spirit. And so he's given you a spirit so that you can live a spiritual life. So spiritual life is not something that you have to attain, 
right? A spirit-filled life is not something that I have to check these boxes and then, wow, I will be living spirit-filled. Spirit-filled life is Christian, Christian, Christian life. Because to be a Christian is to be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does that look like, right? It looks like reminding ourselves. There's no condemnation, right? We have this, uh, we have this renewed sense of who we are. Uh, what does that look like? It reminds us that we are now living in resurrection power, right? Our mind is no longer set on things of the flesh. And when it is, we're like, oh, I got to fight against that. That's that mortification. And then we remind ourselves that we have this intimate language of this intimate relationship that we can uh, use to call God. Um, this is spiritual life. And this is why Pentecost is a big deal, right? This is why we all of a sudden are like, hey, you know what? Let's actually, let's actually do something significant and not just treat this like this is another Sunday because this particular Sunday we get to stop and say, whoa, look at what God has done. Wow, he, he gave us himself in the, in the, in the person of Holy Spirit. So you would not be alone. That's how much he cares for you. He has given you himself. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.